You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Prehistories Podcast with me, Kim Biddle. I am very excited about today's podcast because we are going to be talking about an absolutely classic book that many of you will have read as children and maybe seen the TV series in the 1980s based on this book. Um, And I have um, a wonderful guest to talk about it with me. Um, So as usual, if you haven't listened to this podcast before, I'll introduce my guest. We'll talk about some of the archaeology that might be underlying this book and then get into the book itself. Read some extracts for it and and pick it apart and work out what it's trying to tell us about um, this particular topic and um, whether or not it does it very well. And I think it's such a well-loved book. All right, I'll tell you what it is. I'll tell you the book. It is Stig of the Dump by Clive King, an absolutely lovely children's book. Um, And I know that quite a lot of uh, schools are using it to teach their Stone Age topic now, so I think it'd be quite useful to have a chat about what's the evidence behind it. The person that I have to chat with me today is Dr. Becky Scott of the British Museum. Hello. Hello. Hi, Becky. Hi. Thank you very much for joining me today. A pleasure, Kim. Thank you. Um, uh, you're, you've got a massive amount of expertise because you call yourself a professional Neanderthal botherer, I believe. <laughs> Yes, I do. I do. I, I love a Neanderthal and I particularly love um, their stone tool technology and what it can tell us about how they lived. So that that's my thing, really. Excellent. And um, I, yeah, I recently got one of your books. Um, well, it's a book with um, a few authors um, because my husband works for Oxford Archaeology. Um, oh, so, right. Yes, we got hold of The Lost Landscapes of Paleolithic Britain, which is lovely because if you think about Britain, it doesn't really make sense for most of the Stone Age, does it? It's not a thing, really. No, Britain. it's not. We're, we're absolutely... Britain is not a thing. We're, we're part of continental Europe as a whole, whole. Actually, the island itself is only created beginning about 500,000 years ago, but still connected at different times. So, so this idea we have about ourselves being something very separate, um, you know, sort of given what's going on in the news at the moment, sort of very separate from Europe, actually, you know, a little bit of perspective and and we're still very much part of that larger community. So it's, yeah, it's fascinating. Absolutely. If if, um, those ice sheets haven't come so far south, um, uh, then we would still have had that kind of chalk upland, wouldn't we, Um, connecting Dover to northern France. What I find amazing when you go over on the on the ferry is that you seem to have arrived in the same place. It's the same landscape um, if you cross over uh, Dover to Calais because it's all up those, those chalk cliffs. And you can see that they were once connected it absolutely is and it, it fascinates me because i mean i'm actually from east kent i'm from deals so that oh. landscape that chalk landscape is very very familiar to me yeah um and and actually i went to the north of france which i used to go to all the time as a kid sort of on a booze cruise and yes. other things that we did in the 1980s <laughs> and it was really interesting going 
back recently and looking from the French side outwards yeah. with a completely different perspective on that landscape and the changes that have happened to it and, and sort of seeing the other side of the, the geological bowl of the wheel as well. So, it's, yeah, it's yeah. it's fascinating looking at something with different eyes to how you first saw and experienced it. So, yeah, very exciting. Yeah, what I find sometimes I look at a landscape, I'm, I'm from up north, and sometimes I look at the landscapes up there and um, I think, well, I've got to go and look at Sheffield, for instance. What mm. would it look like if there were no houses there? What was that actually like? It's a very hilly city and it's um it, you know it's basically an outlying portion of the peak district and it yeah. would just have looked it wouldn't have been different it would have looked very much like that although of course peak district has been massively changed um the, the actual you know the, the environment the, the vegetation has obviously had human impact on it um but yeah it's a, and, and obviously you can look a little bit further back and look at those massive geological changes as well but it's fascinating, isn't it? That that point you make about um, taking the houses away, and it's not just taking the houses away, but but we see so little of our landscape in the spaces within it we live, and that, that I think that's one of the things I really like about taking a very very broad perspective is that you realise that the landscape is in flux; it's changing just as much as everything people do yeah. is in flux and changing. And I, I find that absolutely fascinating. It is, but it's quite difficult to get your head around it, isn't it? It is, and especially the time depth involved. I mean, I was involved in a an exhibition with the Natural History Museum that was um, sort of showing the results of the AHOB project, which was something I was involved in. Oh, yes. And they sort of worked with a, a, a focus group there of sort of, they, they termed them learned liberal adults. So they, these are, you know, sort of the Guardian reading public, I suppose. And they actually worked out that talking to these people who are educated to quite a high level, functionally, people can't distinguish between 500,000 years ago and 50,000 years ago. And that's absolutely fascinating when you think about the fact that, you know, we've got several human species coming and going within that space of time. And how do you draw that and how do you tell that story and, and make people recognize you know the flux that there is within that rather than just giving sort of a generic flat picture of everybody pre-modern yes. did this everyone who's not a pre-modern human works in this way and i think that's one of the things i'm most interested in is trying to get that that dynamism yeah. and communicate that dynamism of the the archaeological records the and especially the neanderthal record that lets us see it as something active and changing and, and with a history as much as ours, yeah. rather than just something static and fixed that we compare with what we do. Exactly. I thought that that was just an issue for children because obviously I've got my, my main job is to go out and teach children about the Stone Age to Iron Age period and to, to at least get some kind of um, you know distinction between the... Um, the earliest Stone Age and the following Stone Age is the most that, that I can manage, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. But that's true. And I, I think because that's so difficult and we're so used to it, so I'm used to talking about, you know, 50,000-year blocks of time, yeah. we become blasé to that. Yeah. 
and actually that that's these are really difficult things to communicate and recognize how long they are and how vast they are and i think we need to think a lot more about that we do, we do, uh, to help people pick that apart and yeah. communicate that to kids as well we forget how long it took for us to be able to, to um to automatically think of these periods of time and how they are different yeah um, yeah. <laughs> yeah well i mean obviously there's um Neanderthals being in Britain about 60,000 to 40,000 years ago and that's late Neanderthals the the Neanderthals who about 35,000 years ago get replaced by modern humans so by that time this group of people are doing things in ways that we'd consider to be recognizably Neanderthal they're acting like Neanderthals Um, and there's a lot of sites that seem to reflect them passing through. So you'll find occasional finds um, of this very, very specific type of stone tool, the type of hand axe. Um, And they've deliberately worked it so that it's sort of got a flat bottom, Mm -hmm. these really sharp corners and and this sort of D-shaped tip. So it's not just a hand axe that does a job. This is a tool that looks a certain way. So there's some sort of idea about you have to make it look a certain way for it to function. And interestingly, the group of Neanderthals in Britain who make these Mm. are making them in a slightly different way to continental Neanderthals. So Neanderthals in northern France at this point are making these funny triangular hand axes. Mm. So it does the same job but it looks very, very different. So you already get that idea of people sort of doing things and conceiving of themselves yeah. as right. as different groups as long ago as that, which wow. is something I find quite fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's already that geographic separation kind of having an effect on, uh, you know, the, the groups of people. But then they move around a lot then. Yes, they seem to have done. So one of, one of the regions that, we have increasing evidence for people moving across is actually the plain of the North Sea. So we were talking about Britain separating through the Straits of Dover, the chalk being worn away. um, And this is something that starts to happen about 500,000 years ago. But actually, that's not the only way into Britain. Where the North Sea and the Southern North Sea is today, actually, when it's very, very cold, um, and the, the seawater of the world in general is locked up in, in glaciers and expanded polar regions. Actually, that seabed is exposed. And this seems to be a really important Neanderthal landscape. So sort of going from Norfolk and Suffolk um, mm. 
across the North Sea and then into Belgium and the Netherlands. This seems to be one big territory that you see people using all the time and that the most important site that we've got in this country of this state is the site of Linford in Norfolk um, which is was published I think it was last year or the year before but I was lucky enough to see a lot of the material when I was doing my PhD um, and here you've got a sort of meander cut off of a river and in that Neanderthals are, are wading in We've got mammoths. It looks like they're deliberately carrying particular portions of the mammoth right. away out of, you know, and butchering them on the side. Yeah. And we see lots and lots of these hand axes, this specific type of hand axe being used, reworked and discarded within this little area. So this is one of those incredible little snapshots yeah. Yeah. Um of what people are doing that you have to sort of argue out with to this whole enormous area going across to the Netherlands. So this, this area underneath the North Sea is often called Doggerland, isn't it, after the Doggerbanks? It is, it is. Um, and it's, it's under the sea. And, and, you know, I mean, I think we're a long way off being able to really do any proper underwater archaeology that, that looks at remains of this day um, but one of the things that's happening especially in the Netherlands um, but in East Anglia as well is is archaeologists are starting to work more and more with the fishing industry um, because they're using these big drag nets across the, the North Sea yeah. and they're recovering lots and lots of bone especially of the animals that Neanderthals would have lived alongside but also sometimes their tools um, and fascinatingly, a couple of years back, there was actually a Neanderthal skull from the Zealand ridges. Oh, wow. So that's one particular area of the North Sea. And that, that's the first, you know, Neanderthal fossil yeah. we've had from this landscape. So you've got little bits and pieces from here, but it's really the terrestrial sites, the sites around the edges mm-hmm. that let us see how people are coping there. I mean, we know it's very, very cold. One of the things that always astonishes me about Linford is um, because it's a cut-off, you've got lots and lots of um, insects and beetles and things like that that you wouldn't normally have in a site of that date. So these are beetles that are sort of over 40,000 years old, okay? Um, And they tell you very, very precisely about the temperature. And one of the things we can tell from the beetles is that winter temperatures are down to about minus 12 now just just think about that mm-hmm. and think how we'd survive in temperatures of minus 12 if we had you know i guess we're talking about somewhere like berlin yeah. or southern scandinavia like how are you going to survive in winter temperatures like that even you know kitted out with gore-tex and all the rest of it exactly Neanderthals and, of course, the early Homo sapiens who come in um, to Europe after about 35,000 years ago. Um, they are often all lumped in with the word caveman or caveman. Yes. And yeah. The, the point is, is that um, caves were just other places that have survived where they left some of their, you know, paintings on all of some of the things that they've, um, some of the artifacts that they made. Um, and they may well have. Um, lived and stayed in caves, but there are, but surely there are, there's loads of sites where um, 
as they well, lived in the open air as well and created some kind of shelters for themselves. Did, is that what was found at Lidford? There's not. I mean, it's it's probably too wet as well because you're talking about right down on the floodplain there. Yeah. So it's it's probably quite damp, quite marshy, um, and also somewhere that other predators are going to be quite keen to move mm-hmm. through as well. I mean, one of the things that's so fascinating when you think about sort of East Anglia through to the Netherlands is that's not somewhere you're naturally going to get anything like caves is it the geology's not right you know you've got you've got no granites you've got no um limestones or anything like that so they must have another form of shelter but something you know so ephemeral that we're never going to find traces of it i mean whether it's structures that are weighted down with stones or structures that use stakes to keep them up or something like that i mean these are people who are moving through these landscapes all the time and they're not leaving much of an imprint in terms of where they're living. You can think of people making shelters as opposed to just finding caves to live in. Then it gives them a certain credit with a little more intelligence, I suppose, and ingenuity. And like they're people, they are, you know, rather than thinking of Neanderthals as some ape like, um, straight, you know. Um, just yeah i mean they're, they're just a different sort of yeah. people um and this surviving in this sort of landscape is actually what they're supremely good at i mean they what well, you're talking about a species who in europe first appeared from mm, about three hundred and fifty thousand years ago so if you're talking from three hundred and fifty thousand years ago through to thirty five thousand years ago they're surviving often in those very very harsh environments much more successfully than we've done so far so you know there's an awful lot of ingenuity there something i find quite fascinating is um obviously fire is very very important and control of fire and being able to make fire um and there's increasing the evidence not just that they're able to do this but that they're able to do this in ways that you and I would struggle to grasp. So there's there's some, some recent work been doing, looking at ways in which they've probably been using different chemicals, so particular manganeses and things like that, minerals, um, to help in fire lighting, which is fascinating. Um, and something else that we see is I mean, a lot of their stone tool technology seems to have been hafted. So these are sort of held within... Uh, an armature you know like sort of like a spear or something like that and and a lot of the northern european sites we see evidence of them making this sort of birch bark pitch in order to hold tools within the binding as a mastic and actually the process you have to go through to do that is very very complicated um and it's something that you know modern humans trying to recreate this experimentally can't really achieve without a baked bean tin, you know. So they've, they've got very specific ways of doing quite complicated things and, and they're perfectly adapted to these environments. I find it fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's lovely to, um, yeah, to learn so much about these our cousins who, of course, probably have relations with when they did, when modern humans did finally turn up. At the moment, we're just going to take a short break and when we come back, we'll talk more about Stephen the Dump itself. 
um, and about the evidence behind it, and I'll read out a few extracts. So see you after these messages. Archaeology and Ale is a free monthly talk presented by Archaeology in the City from the University of Sheffield Archaeology Department. That's where the archaeology part of Archaeology and Ale comes from. As for the ale part, the talk is held upstairs at the Red Deer, a great local pub on Pitt Street in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, on the last Thursday of every month. If you're in Sheffield, do come along, and don't worry, non-ale alternatives are also available. If you can't make it to Sheffield, never fear. You can listen to the Archaeology and Ale Talk every month, right here on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to be talking about Stick of the Dump. Now, we've, we've talked about the ingenuity of characters, um, and we've talked about the... Uh, so we're going to mention a little bit about the hunting um, and so on. So um, we're going to, um, I want to read out um, a little extract for Becky. And I know that Becky has been rereading this book to her daughter um, <laughs> to, uh, because it's a, um, obviously it's a really lovely book. Anyway, um, and uh, she'll be very familiar with these bits. So, so Stig, Bob, um, who is the main protagonist, the modern human, as it were, um, has found Stig by falling down into the pit, um, he, into the dump. He went back the next day and decided to take some uh, presents with him, and one of those are some cans, some baked bean tins, probably, Becky. <laughs> so, Barney thought it was a bit childish of Stig to sit there playing like a baby with plastic bricks, when there was all that work to be done. But Stig went on seriously worrying over the problem of fitting the baking tins together. He found that by pinching together the end of a tin, he could make it fit into the next one, and soon he had four or five fitted together like the length of stovepipe. Stovepipe! But I knew there was something Stig needed badly. You are clever, Stig, he said. You've made a chimney. So what I love about that quote is the fact that to start with, Barney thinks that Stig is being very childish, and then eventually he realises that Stig is being much more intelligent than that, and he's experimenting with things, with new materials, and working out what he can do with them. Imagine what a Neanderthal would do with, I mean, as you say, if they were experimenting with with chemicals to help them um, make fires, that um, sounds very much like Stig, doesn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's really... I mean, I, I find things like that really interesting because, of course, we, we do most of our learning through through our hands, through material engagement, through, through you know, trying to reshape and, and imitate and, and things like that, which, I mean, you know, we're, we're increasingly concentrating on screens and things like that is, is a way of learning that perhaps we're, we're losing a little bit. But, yeah, I, I love that in that, it's not a new material because obviously he's living in the dump with all these modern human stuff that's thrown in, but it's the way that he, he fiddles and shapes and plays with it until he finds some way of fitting it. Yeah. yeah. They obviously have put the chimney up to, um, to help keep some of that smoke out. I mean, um, sometimes the, it's a little contrived. I mean, if you've got the right kind of wood, it wouldn't actually be that smoky inside his little cave. 
Um, no. Nope. <laughs> uh, but uh, maybe Stiglitz just had to make do with what he could find in the dump. So that's why it was a little bit smoky. Maybe it had varnish on it or something. So that's what he was... Um, and I must I must admit something that always irks me a little bit about these sections um, and also the and this without getting into, you know, whether we think Stiggs and Neanderthal are modern human is it always has to be Barney who works out what you do with it. So in terms of, you know, it's Barney who goes, oh, it's a chimney and puts it over the fire or it's Barney who goes, oh, look, we can make a, a window like yes, this sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. I, I see, yes, I can see what you mean, but in a way, I think he's learning um, in the same way as Stig, and sometimes he's learning from Stig, um, uh, and he's, uh, so maybe it's not quite so, you know, speciesist as all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Stig clearly shows a, a great um, um, this, um, kind of skill with his hands, kind of sense of engineering, because he's already built this shelter by the time Barney turns up, using all these things that he's never seen before. And there's a, there's a point where he talk, um, Barney describes how Stig has um, got a little um, water collector uh, made out of an old tube and some kind of ball <laughs> and a can of, of weed killer. <laughs> Yes. Um, One of my favourite bits actually is um, there's there's a bit where Stiggy's taking apart uh, an umbrella to use the pieces for other things. And what I love about this is that recycling like that is something that we see all the time um, in the Neanderthal record. So I'm working a lot in Jersey at the moment, which is a long, long way from any flint it's an igneous island you know it's all volcanic so what you see people doing is recycling their flint endlessly and and i particularly like that umbrella section because that you know has a real resonance for me in terms of something that i see you know my neanderthals doing you know so that that's really nice (laughs) i like that it has that that kind of link to um to what you're seeing. So uh, in Jersey, are you, uh, the site is, um, you're mainly working on La Cote de saint or are you working at other sites? Because that's quite a famous site there, isn't it? We're working there a lot. We're working on a lot of the material that was excavated from there in the 1970s, mostly. So we're doing a big project on that, um, but also looking at other sites especially around the coast um, as well. I mean, it's, it's incredible. I think because it's right on the edge of the of the Channel River plain, the Channel River landscape, it's one of the places you can go to to start looking out to places you can't get at underneath the sea. So that actually there's loads of Neanderthal archaeology from there and from Brittany as well, so it's fascinating. Yeah, so I think we were talking about um, the uh, changing landscape before and, and basically... Uh, Jersey would have been a quite a big hill in the middle of a, of a very low-lying landscape, which is now the channel. Is that right? Is that yeah. What, what period um, does that start to change? Then is that? So that, that happens repeatedly. Whenever it's yeah. cold, um, when it, whenever it's a, a glacial or going into a glacial period and you've got low sea level, you only need a drop of about seven metres to reconnect Jersey to mainland really? France. Um, wow. So it, it doesn't take a lot to start reconnecting it into the continent. Um, 
But actually to, to start accessing the chalk and therefore the flint that's available in the middle of the channel, you need much bigger right. drops, you know, sort of 20, 30 metres, things like that. So so one of the things I love about working there is you're really dealing with a, a landscape in flux, yeah. but people who keep using it regardless of that. So Neanderthals are using La Cote de Saint-Bellard for, you know, sort of 200,000 years they keep coming back there there's something about this this site this place this island that's very very visible from a long way yeah. away that means that they're they're always tracking in on it they're always adapting their itineraries to to sort of go back there they know this landscape really really well um and like i say they're carrying they're recycling the material they've picked up on the seabed they're carrying it with them so this isn't them just ending up there by accident. I mean, I feel like these are sort of strategic journeys for a particular reason. So, yeah, really exciting. I also would suggest, I mean, yes, it could be that it's just, you can see it from a long way away and therefore go there, but presumably you'd have to know that, you know, that you'd be there before, or possibly that your parents have been there before, or even your grandparents, depending on the, or, or even further back which suggests kind of those stories being told through the ages that had passed down. Because there really isn't quite a long gap at one point. I mean, maybe it's just been found accidentally, but... Um May well, maybe it was, or, or maybe you do keep these stories going about where places are. Storytelling and myths and that kind of thing. And that, that just makes it even more human for me, really. Well, that, that's one of the things I think about that landscape and the way it's used for such a length of time and, and people coming back, you know, as conditions change is, is for me, that bespeaks the sort of familiarity that needs mm. storytelling and complex information and navigation, you know. I mean, storytelling is often used as navigation yeah. aid, isn't it? So, so, you know, people will walk song lines or storylines and, and, and that's how you navigate through an unfamiliar landscape. I mean, maybe these are these very, very cold landscapes, it's only then that you need to know your way through it or something like that. But yeah, it, yeah. I think so. I think you get you get hints of that. And all right, of course, you know, Neanderthals or anyone are who you make yeah. them. And for me, you know, they, they are quite a, a lived and active people. Um, I think you can see hints of that in, in the way that people do come back to places again and again. Yeah, I think... Uh, but in a way, it's, it's more evidence of language. I mean, it, but I, I don't think it's it, it's um, such a strange thing to think that Neanderthals have language nowadays, is it? I mean, um, but I do come across um, in their school groups, particularly, you know, school children who are asking even if the people who first modern humans who came and painted the caves could speak. They think that um, for some reason there are, there are these um, kind of uh, prehistoric myths going around that have been created probably by um, teachers that um, they were using this as communication because they couldn't actually speak to each other rather than the fact that this, oh this goodness. amazing culture clearly is based on a rich language um, yeah. which is kind of the other way around really isn't it and I, I, really the way we're talking about it many ourselves will probably have, just as, have their complex language as well in a book of course in Stig he mainly communicates in grunts, and this has become quite a, uh, a trope that you find around um, 
lots of depictions of of the Interstellar. So I don't know if you want to again have to watch Pickle Biz. <laughs> we try and avoid that, but yes. Oh yes, yes. It's not very silly, obviously. And Raymond Briggs' book about the cold perk as well, where everything everything is made of stone. The trousers are made of stone. Everything, and it's it's funny how there seems to be a very it's very difficult to get rid of that idea that. Neanderthals or cave people were actually just like us and just as intelligent um, and actually more skilled in lots of different things that we wouldn't know how to do at all today. I often think there's two things Mm. going on in that there is the generic Stone Age person I'm going to say caveman because it's always yeah. a man, you know, and it's, you know, it's the generic yeah. caveman. And yeah. that's someone we've sort of created in popular culture, um, informed by how we used to think about Stone Age people. So you, you'll sort of get the knuckle dragging Neanderthal type reconstruction mm. that was informed by, you know, how Ball originally recreated the Neanderthal skeleton, things like that. The thing with the language, you know, when I was a student in the 90s, I was actually told by one of my lecturers that um, Neanderthals probably could talk, but so slowly that they'd have forgotten by the end of a sentence what they were saying at the beginning of it, sort of thing, you know. And it's been, what, the last 20 years that's seen us totally move away from that. So it's no surprise, really, that, you know, artists, designers comic writers you know graphic novelists the media are struggling to to yeah. keep up because i think these images are so ingrained in our consciousness yeah. now that the onus is on us to be much more imaginative in going and talking to people and say you know no it would be minus 12 degrees i mean they they wouldn't have just been wearing a loincloth they'd have been wearing you know skins parkas we, we've got to give people the the information to, to yes. come up with better reconstructions and better images of of, of Neanderthal people well, rather than this yeah generic troglodyte. I am I harbour yeah I've got a, a big soft spot for clan of the cave bear actually and um, certainly the the earlier ones i mean i must admit by the time it got to the, the later ones and you know she's she ayla's just doing like a, a tour of all the painted yeah. cave sites i totally lost interest in those sort of thing but yeah i'm looking forward to it very much <laughs> after the clan of the cave bear the don't don't really turn up at all but of course that's because I haven't, but I, I put my hand up now. I'd love oh, to do it. <laughs> yeah, of course he does all the time. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, with the language thing, but the whole idea of hunting as well is um, uh, 
it can only be done really uh, if, if you're going to hunt something like a mammoth, you're talking about a limpet, or um, uh, many of the other animals actually, which are obviously very much faster than the Neanderthals were. They, were, they um, uh, are running for their lives, so you've got to be particularly good at uh, catching them or, or somehow uh, trapping them or something. Uh, but you've got to be communicating in order with your absolutely. with your other absolutely. people absolutely yeah so can i just read another extract from um because yeah. um, yes. there's a lovely bit where he um this is a time uh, the book was written in a time when um, a lot of people still went hunting for foxes i mean obviously that is still happening now, sadly. Um, but it was very much accepted um, at this point. So Barney wants Stick to go and uh, wants to go with Stick to hunt the fox, but Stick isn't interested in the fox. Once again, Stick was not listening to Barney. He was hearing something new: the thud and squelch of heavy hooves moving through the woodland glades. And perhaps he was smelling another animal smell. The horses of the hunt followers were moving through the wood. And now at last Stick's face was alight with the excitement of the hunt. Without a sound or a look to Barney, he slipped into the undergrowth and started flitting from thicket to thicket and tree trunk to tree trunk towards the sounds of the horses, a barrel already strung in his bow and held with his left thumb. Stick was really hunting now, and to him, horses were meat! <laughs> <laughs> they did and actually this um horses and humans is something you see all the way through the lower paleolithic into the middle paleolithic they're they're very much one of the favored prey species and i think one of the reasons for this is they like herd animals they're very very keen on herd animals and and something you see when you look at their hunting sites is they know animal behavior very very well but they also know their landscape so quite often um they're using blinds um sort of natural topographic falls you know things about their landscapes to help them pick off um particular particular animals from a herd or even take a large part of a herd and then sort of pick at it, eat the bits that they want um, afterwards. So, th- so this is something you see again and again. So you, you see it with, you see it with horses. They, they, they love a horse. Um, you also see it with um, bovids of different sorts. So, so cows, um, bison in particular. And then you see it with, there's one particular site in Germany where you see it with reindeer. So I think, one of the things about a herd is that it's quite a big package and your chances of, of picking some of it off are increased. So they're very carefully watching where animals go through and then targeting them at the, the natural nick points in the landscape where they can get at them. So that's very, very predictive yeah. behaviour. Um, so that involves complex concepts of you know tense of future of referring to places that are distant in time and space and also um conditional language so the animals could do this if they do this um and also being able to communicate with others over long distance in order to put this plan into action so i think their hunting behavior is one of the points where you really see them you, you really see how complex the landscape must their language yeah. must have been yeah, awesome. 
Did the Easter Island statues walk? Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries, hoax or fact. Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. Welcome back. Now then, having um, 
whetted your appetite for all this Neanderthal archaeology we're talking about Stig. And Stig is depicted in the um, original illustrations in the book as very Neanderthal looking, don't you think? Have you, have you got the original? Um, I have, yes, or I've, I've got a, it's got the original illustrations in it anyway, yeah. And he does, I mean, he's, he's drawn with, you know, quite, quite sort of large brow ridges. I, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right, actually, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so, so clearly, I mean, the idea that the illustrator has taken is that he's a Neanderthal. Um, I have to say that reading it again, so reading it as a child, I absolutely and totally accepted that he was, I mean, not a Neanderthal because I'm not sure I knew that much about Neanderthals at that point, but, you know, he, he's a, a generic yeah. caveman. Um, reading it now, I, I thought, actually, I think Stig is a child's idea of what a stone age yeah. person is like so although i th i think possibly he's a barney's eye view of a stone age person and for barney and for the reader then those sort of neanderthal features are part of that but also something that really caught me out actually and i know we, we were talking a little before we started about this is i'd completely forgotten the section yeah. at the end of the book, um, yeah, where no, they're no, actually, no, you're in the next section. Right. <laughs> okay. okay, so this is, finally, Stig has been trapped in the modern day for, we don't know how long, maybe a year or so, um, and finally Barney and his sister Lou end up accompanying Stig back to his own time, and then the various things happen, they introduce themselves to the head of their tribe, and that, uh, Stig's tribe, that kind of thing. And then this happens. Look, she breathed. There it is. Barney saw it almost at the same moment, though he still didn't know what it was he saw. Out of the mist at the base of the hill, there heaved itself every now and then a dark shape that stood up for a moment and then each time fell forward in their direction. And every time it appeared, there came this wail followed by the earth shaking thump. And now there seemed to be an extra sound attached to it between the wail and the thump, like this. And the sound seemed to be not one loud voice, but many voices. And then Barney could see that the dark shape had sort of strings or feelers joined to it. Dinah, who's the dog, standing between them, had seen it now, and the hair was standing up on her neck and back, and Barney felt that his was too. So what is this? What's happening? Well, it's one of the, it's one of the Kent, I mean, I'm a Kent girl, this is one of the Kent yeah. megaliths, isn't it? This is Kit's yeah. Cutty or somewhere like yeah. this. So, so yeah, so all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're with monument builders, we're, we're in the Neolithic. Um, and I think, I think it is, well, it is to us, it is to us, but if you're, I mean, how old is Barney? He's about eight, I guess, is he? Yeah, so... That is how you put together your your idea of prehistoric people um, without an idea of time depth, isn't it? So I think what what Stig does is he takes that idea of of from popular culture of yeah. a cave dweller um, with 
these Stone Age people who are building monuments. And it's sort of a, an amalgamation of, of both of them, which is very much what you do. I mean, you know, growing up on the chalk, I remember something that we used to do a lot is, you know, pick up flint and we thought we were making arrowheads, you know, sort of thing and, and try and halved arrowheads on sticks and things like that. So you're always playing with yeah. these ideas. Um, I mean, something I think is quite interesting with stick is to go through it and think about, you know, where those ideas have come from. And, and you know, so there's the bits of stick that are Neanderthali, um, which is principally, you know, how he's depicted. And, and, you know, where have these ideas come from? Where's Barney getting these ideas about or, or the Barneys of this world? Where do we get these ideas about what yeah, Stone Age what people it? are? Yes. Yeah. I know. It's it's mm. so nice. Is Stig actually a figment of Barley's imagination? I came out, actually, I finished it this time round, and I, yes, I think he is. I mean, it's not as, it's not as um, foregrounded as that, but certainly that whole sort of magical realism section with the megaliths at the end, you, you do think this is, you know, th this has become a game, this is how you put things together into into a picture of someone when when you're playing at that in your head so that that was but I don't think that's what I'd have thought as a child at all and I, I never that's certainly not something that I remember ever occurring to me at but at the same time I've completely blanked that bit yes oh, <laughs> it's the most, um, um, it's the most memorable bit really the, the earlier parts of the book are much more memorable um, where he's actually more Neanderthal, as you say, but not, <laughs> not like he's a Neolithic person building a megalithic structure, which is just so... No! For, for an archaeologist who has got used to dividing up the past into particular ways, um, that is really weird, but I, I just worry that if this book is being used in schools, that this is how... I wonder what, how are teachers, are, um, are, they, are they able to, to actually divide up the past in this way and I'm not, I'm not sure that they are I mean primary school teachers are not, not usually history specialists and if they are history specialists they're usually done historic history rather than prehistorics so um, it's a completely yes, different way of, of thinking about the past I think in many ways um, uh, and, and recognising those, those very very deep um, time periods and the huge differences between you know um, and it's a problem of yeah. terminology as well, isn't it? In that we tend to shove everything for children into the the broad bracket Stone Age, yeah. but basically you're talking about a million years, and, and we know kids can grasp this stuff. I mean, look look at what children do with the the timescales that the dinosaurs and different dinosaur species yeah. were around, yeah. sort of thing. So yeah. Uh, that dinosaur was Cretaceous, it was a Jurassic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I
how do we then divide that up so that we can think about it more more easily? But even then, I still only divide it up into Paleolithic, Mesolithic, and Neolithic. I don't divide it up into <laughs> Low Paleolithic and Middle Paleolithic and many other subjects. Oh God, yeah, that way madness lies. <laughs> I think I think there's something that really comes from the contrast between a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, be that Neanderthal hunter-gatherers, earlier Pleistocene hunter-gatherers, or modern human hunter-gatherers. There's a real contrast between that and a lifestyle and starting, you know, to mark the land, to build monuments, yeah. to farm, isn't there? And I think I think that is a, you know, for for these purposes, is a, is a useful it's point of like of distinction, isn't it? It's interesting. Um, yeah. To, um, to, to finish off, I just wondered what you thought about the. So let's let's sit, just imagine that Stig is real, because of course at one point, I mean, his his sister becomes involved as well, and you know, and he's um, and that kind of thing. So you may be Stig was real. I think that uh, they, Clive King, the author, was obviously trying to play with them. Uh, with his readers about about whether or not Stig was a figment of Barney's imagination, but um, uh, what do you think then about the the meeting between um, human, non-human, and Neanderthal? I should say, yeah, Neanderthal's a human too. Um, <laughs> um, what well, it, it seems to be quite a mutually beneficial meeting, um, a friendly meeting, um, and both of them help each other out quite a lot. What, what, yes, so they do. Is that, 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 is we're talking about, I mean, we, we certainly know that modern humans and Neanderthals probably met um, because there is some genetic exchange. So in, in some instances, that seems to be very, very much one way. So it's we're only getting genetic material from um, I can't actually remember whether it's Neanderthal women or modern human women, but it's either that only one sex is is yeah. mating in or it's that the offspring of the other sex aren't actually so surviving to contribute so, to the... Yeah, I saw this yeah. amazing um, image the other day of a Neanderthal man and a, <laughs> and a modern human woman um, in a bed of skin. It was, it was obviously, sorry, in a bed of skin, it was obviously post-coital. <laughs> and they were lying back. <laughs> it was only a bunch of time, really, before they decided to do that. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, so the, there is that DNA evidence that, that um, there was interbreeding. Um, but otherwise, are the Neanderthals learning anything from humans? Are humans learning anything from Neanderthals? There's a, there's a lot of debate about um, the, the final Neanderthals start to sort of mark their body in different ways. You know, mm -hmm. you start to see ornament and things like this these um these particular type of hand axes that look a specific way are a late neanderthal thing so generally without modern humans there seems to be a move towards differentiating your group yeah. from other people and modern humans are other people 
in the same way. I mean, for some people, the the use of ornament is something that's learnt and borrowed from other people. But, you know, earlier on, we see Neanderthals using feather and things like that, you know, deliberately getting flight feathers from particular types of bird, which we can't see a practical reason for that. I mean, in my head, there, there's something, you know, rather glorious and Mardi Gras, you know. So there are many ways in which people can be visually sing symboling without copying what humans are doing i think actually population numbers yeah. are so low that whichever human group you're encountering if you don't know them if they're not part of your extended social yeah. network they are others you know so it doesn't matter what species they are that they are other people who do things in a different way you know whether they're other neanderthals or other modern oh, humans and actually i think presumably yeah because they're coming up um from from the south and originally from africa as well so presumably they're you know they're visually you know they, they look visually different in a way that you might not see with other neanderthal people um yeah no it's it's really interesting i mean it and it's those sorts of interactions that i think we're really going to struggle to to yeah. put our finger on um but which are much more interesting than how did neanderthals die out which is that you know to my mind is the most tedious and boring question oh because yeah. we're always asked that I, I don't care i don't care i want to know how neanderthals came to act yeah. like they did by that time by forty thousand years ago i'm interested in that 200,000 year you know 300,000 year development of their way of doing things I'm not interested in why they went extinct I mean, and if there is a genetic contribution I mean can we truly say they've gone extinct I mean we're obviously species who can exchange DNA so are we truly separate well, or they or they code in slightly different ways. So there's something that's developed in parallel in modern humans as much as it has in Neanderthals. Yeah. Uh, Becky, uh, um, uh, just as a final word, do you do you love Stick with the Dumb, or do you love it? I oh no, I love it actually. Um, and I have to say, one of the reasons I love it is that it is it does bring you back to those childhood games. Um, and he lives on yeah. chalk as well, so it reminds me of my childhood in Kent. It's set in Kent, so it really reminds me of you know those first games of playing at being a cave dweller um and i i still really you know that's something i really enjoyed and i think there's a lot of joy to be had out of that and and trying to improvise and work out how you'd live without all this stuff that we're surrounded by today it's fascinating encourage children to be more interested in finding out about 
Yeah, she's better. <laughs> I mean, she's, yeah, I mean, she's quite interested anyway, unless she thinks I'm talking about work. But yeah, actually, I think there are particular things you can pick out of it that are the things children love. And I think making mm. stone tools is something that you can pick up from that very, very easily and talk to them about, you know, bring someone in who does flint napping, have a go at flint napping yourself, but don't hurt yourself. You know, you know, there are things like that, that yeah. it's the doing and it's the way Barney and Stig do things together that really capture children's imagination. So I think there are activities yeah, like that that yeah. you can pull out and they yeah. sort of bring you into that world. of of lavawa flaking but also you know you can you can demonstrate making a hand axe you can demonstrate anything with that but i think i mean you've got to get children to handle these tools you know even if they are sharp you know children can handle objects carefully and try and guess what they were used for i mean I, that's something that you know you can yeah. do with a certain yeah. amount of supervision yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's it just something about that the whole experience of um, actually knocking the flake off a bit of flint is, is um, it's yeah there's something magical about that yeah. we'll see what we can do yeah, yeah. Um, you've got your little mm. uh, potato um, video haven't you uh, I did actually do that somebody did that um, yeah. yeah following a a suggestion of mine I mean it's sort of it's sort of gone around a few times on the Twitter sort of thing but yeah I can't <laughs> um, is it? <laughs> it's a bit squishy though you, you actually you cut it you mimic the removal of flakes um, by cutting it with a with a knife well thank you ever so much Becky it's been wonderful talking to you thank you very uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm um, at Becky Scott UK, so that's fairly straightforward. Um, and the project that I do a lot of work for at the moment in Jersey is hashtag Ice Age Island. So if you follow that, you'll see a lot of the work that yeah, the rest of the team are doing as well. You must get down to Jersey at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you must. It's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Becky, for um, talking to me today about Stig Alton Duff. What a wonderful book. And although it has the Neolithic um, uh, problem at the end of it, um, it's generally a wonderful <laughs> look at how ingenious and uh, altruistic and um, uh, intelligent our Neanderthal ancestors were and how we probably could have gone and probably did get on with them quite well. Um, in my 
next podcast then, um, I will be talking to Mark, no, I won't be talking to Mark Patton, I hope to talk to Mark Patton about his book, The Andrew and Shores, which is set in Jersey, actually, um, but in the Neolithic as well, so that should be interesting. I hope to talk to him um, maybe in a couple of podcasts time, um, but in my next podcast, um, I will be talking to Gavin McGregor and Erin Kavanagh about uh, a poetry special, talking about the poetry of prehistory. So do look out for those. And of course, there are some other fascinating podcasts on the Archaeology Podcast Network. Um, So do have a look through. If you can't wait for my next podcast, there's loads of wonderful things to listen to there. Thank you. Goodbye. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.